0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we're excited to open up your word, and we love hearing from you. And Lord, we just pray, even as you met Zechariah, like we just read about, you met Zechariah with power in the temple. We pray that you would meet with us in power this morning. Lord, we pray that you would convict and encourage, that you would rebuke and assure, that you would send and empower. Lord, we pray that, that, that we may know that when we leave that we have met with the living God. And Lord, we pray that we would never be the same after meeting with you in your word this morning. Father, the power to do those things, the power of this time is not in the gifts of your people, but it's in your word and in your spirit. And so we stand before you utterly dependent And ask that you would fill this place, fill your people with your spirit, that you would be honored and glorified and given great praise through this, Lord. We pray that you would guard your glory and give it to your Son, and we ask in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, we're in a new series, it's a Christmas series, uh, Advent series, and um, we're going to look at five people, or five types of people, and how they responded to the birth of Jesus. And we got these invite cards for you, and these were made by Aaron, drew the picture, Aaron Tolapilo drew this, and it's really cool, it's got the people we're going to look at, we'll look at Zachariah this morning, uh, we'll look at Mary, these are the shepherds obviously, and then uh, Simeon, and then um, who's the guy that's not stoked about Jesus' birth, anyone? Right, that's Herod, so we're going to do Herod as well. Um, so that's what we're going to do, we're going to go through those three, and uh, you might ask like, why such a long Christmas series? You might ask that. Um, or you might ask, why start so early? And the reason is, is because Christmas is a great yearly opportunity we have to do some very specific worship of Jesus and the things that he's done, and to announce Christ. Um, it's, a, it's a great time of worship where we can focus specifically on the doctrine of the Incarnation, how God himself became a man, and worship him specifically for that. Um, and it's really great because, guys, the world puts up all the decorations for us. You know, have you ever thought about it like that? Have you ever thought, like, here we are worshiping the birth of our Lord, and the world, many don't know know him, have put all the decorations out for us. It's it's an amazing act of God's sovereignty. He's like, you will celebrate, even if you don't know why. Um, And it's also a great time of cultural openness to talk about Christ, because we know something that the culture's forgotten or that the culture's trying to ignore. It's actually a truth that haunts our culture, Because they put on this party and then they all kind of know that it really was about something else, you know. And we have an opportunity here to speak about the real reason. We know the real reason for the party that's going on. We know the real reason for celebration. But here's the thing, guys. We could easily miss this opportunity. How many of you guys ever feel like you missed the opportunity of Christmas before? We all have, right? One of the main ways would be what? Um, One of them would be consumerism. Consumerism would be a really common way to miss out on this opportunity because we could just get swept up in the materialism and in the sales and all these things. And at the end, you guys know this, at the end of Christmas, you're sitting in this pile of torn paper and boxes and you have this sinking feeling that you blew it, you know, that you you really missed the season. Another way that you can miss it is by being a culture warrior. What do I mean by that? Constantly complaining to everyone that Christ is being left out of Christmas, you know, left out of the Starbucks cup, you know, left out of the clerk saying Merry Christmas to you and kind of being that kind of culture warrior. Guys, the culture is not called to make sure that the birth of Christ is announced, and that we worship him. That's actually not the culture's job. That's actually our job. And it's really funny that Christians will be like, the culture should be doing this for me. It should be, no, that's for us to do. It's not the culture's job. The other option you could have, so you've got consumerism, culture warrior, curmudgeon. How many of you guys have been the curmudgeon? These are the people that are constantly complaining about the costs and the crowds and the burden of Christmas. And what's amazing is some of us have been able to do all three at once, which is an amazing feat. Good job, guys. You're like consumeristic, culture warrior, and curmudgeon all in one. But we don't, we, what we want to do, guys, is we want to worship and announce Christ. That's what we want to do. And so we, if to do that, we have to refocus our hearts, don't we? There's so much noise out there that we need to refocus our hearts on Christ, on treasuring him. And practicing Advent, which is kind of thinking about Christmas multiple weeks in a row, is a way of refocusing our hearts and making sure that we don't miss what this is about. And it can turn something that's culturally kind of lost into something that's very focused, and it's about worship and announcing Christ. Um, One of the ways that Advent's been done historically um, with families and with churches is to do every Sunday night, for four weeks in a row, so every uh, Sunday night in December, and then Christmas Eve. And I want to just go through that with you real quick, kind of what you could do with your families. Um, It doesn't have to be with kids, it could be, you know, whoever you live with, you could do this. But we have these Advent guides for you, and they're in the very back there. And um, what's really cool is every, so this will start this coming, um, this next um, uh, Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent. And um, this guide gives you something to do for every Sunday night as we go through um, Advent. And I know some of you guys are going to, as families, do it together. Brett's kind of organizing that. They have got a group of families that are going to go from house to house and practice Advent together. So talk to him if you want to do that. But, um, but what it is is this. So you'll, you'll need an Advent guide. Um, ideally, you'll have some ca- uh, candles, one for each. Um, you're like, oh, no, we're getting all candle. They smell really good, though. You guys would be impressed if you came up here. Um, And so each Sunday night, you'll light one of these candles. And here's the different things you can do with them. In this guide, there's a portion of the Christmas story. So next Sunday night, you'd read, you know, this portion about the Christmas story. Uh, There's a little bit from Luke, which we're going through. And then there's a little bit from the Jesus Storybook Bible. So that kind of makes it easier for younger kids. And once again, it could be done with adults as well. And then there's a little commentary you'd read and then you'll sing a song, and so uh, the first song is Away in a Manger, and uh, the best way to do this if you're not real musical is go on YouTube, Away in a Manger with lyrics. Um, dads kind of vet that ahead of time because you could get really weird ones, so get a really good one, okay, get a really good version, and so what you'll do is read this portion, um, sing together the song, have either one of the kids or one of the adults pray, give thanks to God, and then you light one candle. And so. First time you'll light one, so it's usually four purple ones and then the white ones for Christmas Eve. So you start with this first one and then the second week you'll light both of them and then you'll kind of go around. Really fun for kids. Kids love fire. Um, It adds a whole element of danger. If you're having a hard time getting them to focus, light your candles first and that'll kind of quiet them down because they're going to be looking at this. And it has great symbolism. Even our passage it talks about a light coming to those in the darkness. The candles, there's a reason for it. It's got great symbolism. And why do we do this? We do this to retrain our hearts throughout Christmas and focus ourselves and our families on what Christmas is about. Um, The word Advent means coming. And it's a time when we remember that God kept his promise to visit and save his people. And it's also a time, as we'll see in this passage, to remember that God not only kept his promises in the past, but he's going to return and visit his people again and give us the full benefits of salvation. That He kept the promises in the beginning. He's going to keep the promises yet to come. And in Advent, we remember that God has, has kept those ancient promises and he'll keep all the rest. And that's actually why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke luke wrote the gospel of luke to show us that god has kept his promises his his ancient promises look at the beginning in verse 1. he says inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may be certain concerning the things you've been taught. One thing to realize in here is that Luke intended to write a historical account, okay? He's not writing a myth, he's not writing a legend. He doesn't start it with once upon a time. He doesn't start it with uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He doesn't start in that way because he's not meaning to write a myth or a legend or a fairy tale. He's writing history. And when you read those first few four verses, you can see that. He's, and he roots it in historical, um, in historical events. He mentions people like Herod. Who's a historical figure? You can look up in regular history. Um, Caesar Augustus, Pilate, it's rooted in regular history. A lot of times we say, like, oh, there's the Bible story, and then there's real history. No, this is rooted in real history. These are accounts of it. Luke was aware that some had already written historical accounts. He says that some had written accounts that they had based on eyewitnesses. He's probably thinking of Mark there. And he's saying, I wanted to add to the historical record. And he says that he did it with extensive, careful research. It's interesting. The beginning of Luke starts a little different than the others. He's specifically saying, I'm a historian taking historical tasks. He was professionally a physician, but he's writing a historical narrative. What's the narrative of? Look at verse 1. It's a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Accomplished among us. Accomplished by who? Accomplished by God, right? That God has fulfilled his ancient promise and that it's accomplished, So that's what the the Gospels Luke is for, is to show God has accomplished what he promised. And he didn't do it a moment too soon, because things were very bleak in Israel at this time. We're talking maybe 6 BC, you guys might be surprised by that. So, shocker, Jesus was born probably 5 BC, probably not born in December, sorry, Um, the calendar is, you know, got that a little off. Um, You guys probably think he was born at zero. There is no zero, actually. It goes from BC, 1 BC, to 180. That's mind-bending, too. Um, But he was born probably about 5 BC. So this is a year before, um, and things are bleak, you know, and it's due to Israel's sin, right? You had Roman occupation. You had uh, religious divisions of all kinds, um, within um, Judaism, you had, I mean, one of the saddest things is you, it, if, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, there was no ark in there. I mean, talk about emptiness, it had been lost um, many years before. And worse still, there was no word from the Lord for 400 years. Just as perspective, I mean, our country, we've been a country for 242 years. They hadn't heard from God. And this is a nation that would normally have prophets that would speak to them in 400 years. Things were bleak. And in some ways, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life mirrors the bleakness of Israel because they were barren. You know, they were barren, and that wasn't due to their sin. Verse 6 makes really clear, they were righteous and blameless in the commands of the Lord. That's the Old Testament way of not saying that they were perfect, but that they were faithful, repentant people. They were serious, repentant, faithful, believing people, and yet they were barren. And they just kept praying, and they just kept praying, and there was still no child. And, um, and they were at a point now, they were so old, they didn't expect anything to change. Perhaps you, feel you can relate to that this morning. Perhaps you think about the barrenness of that couple and they're praying and praying and not receiving an answer or the, the bleakness of Israel and you, you feel like, you know, I can relate to that. Perhaps you haven't seen anything that you would call a work of God in your life in a really long time or perhaps you find yourself just feeling really oppressed and really beat down like Israel or, or maybe there's some barrenness in your life that you've prayed and prayed about and it just hasn't come to pass and you might wonder, is God done with me? I mean, Zachariah and Elizabeth could easily feel that way. Israel could easily feel that way. Is God done with me? Have I finally driven God away? (laughs) You know, is it too late in my life for anything to change at this point? You know, am I done? But guys, God wasn't done with his people, Israel, was he? He wasn't done with them, and he's not done with his people now. Because God's deliverance, it doesn't depend on our performance. It depends on his promise. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise regardless, right? And so God made a promise to his people, and no matter how they failed, he was going to accomplish it, because God keeps his promises. And so Luke is a historical record of the things that have been accomplished, the things that God's accomplished according to the promise. And so after 400 years of silence, the Lord is on the move, and the first person he wants to tell about it is Zechariah. Isn't that amazing? The Lord sends the angel, angel Gabriel to shake up this old man in the temple. He's going about his business. Take a look at this, verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest, Zechariah, before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Um, Zechariah is a priest. He would have two one week shifts that he would go up to the temple and he would do whatever priestly service needed to be done. And he was selected this time in a very special way to offer incense. So there would be the daily sacrifice, and when they're making the daily sacrifice, one of the priests would go into the holy place and offer incense. Now, this isn't the holy of holies. You might be thinking of that one place where the high priest can only go once a year. That's not that place. It's the place right out from there. So you have the, the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could come in there. And then you have the court of women, and any purified um A Jewish woman could be there. And then you have a court of men where any purified Jewish man could go. Then you have the holy place, which is somewhere that only the priests could go when they were assigned to. And then you have the holy of holies where the high priest could only go in once a year. This is the holy place. And he's been selected to offer incense, which is a huge honor. A lot of times one commentary is saying they probably got one chance to do this in their career because there's like 18,000 of them. They do this little lottery system. And so it would be very rare to get to do this. And so here he is, he goes into the holy place, he's offering the incense. And the incense thing is really cool, because the passage says that the people are praying outside, the people are praying to the Lord outside, and he's offering incense. And the incense, guys, was actually a symbol of how much God loves the prayers of his people. Isn't that amazing? And so while they're praying, they're offering up this incense, and it's a a symbol of how much God loves the prayers of his people. It's as if when we pray, he's like, (sighs) ah. Smell that? That smells good. It's like the bacon, right? Mmm, that smells good. And it's like the Lord saying up in heaven, he's like, smell that? That's the smell my people praying. I love that smell. (laughs) Think about that next time you're praying. Think about the fact that your prayers, it's like you're like one of these aromatherapy things, you know? There's this smell coming up and the Lord's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're praying. Isn't that awesome how much delight God takes in prayer? And so here's Zechariah, and he's praying in the, in the holy place, and he's surrounded by the normal stuff. you got a lampstand, you got a showbread, you got an altar of incense, and he's praying along, and then all of a sudden he notices there's something in there that doesn't belong in there, and it's a somebody. It's an angel, and he's terrified, you know? You ever had that feeling you're in a room, and all of a sudden something spooks you, that, and you're like, oh, that's just a, just a jacket or whatever? Like, he turns out, just, uh, you know, it's an angel. An angel suddenly appears and terrifies him. Guys, angels are thinking, feeling, willing, worshiping creatures just like us, but they just don't have bodies, okay? So they're, they're, they're beings like us um, that, that are made to serve God. They're unseen. You might say, well, I don't believe in angels because I can't see them. Well, you can't see them like you can't see dark matter, and you can't see them like you can't see love. So feel free to not believe in those too. But they're unseen, right? This particular angel is one of those that we actually know his name. We don't know the names of very many of them. This is Gabriel. Gabriel's had other important tasks before, 600 years before he met Daniel in Babylon. And so Gabriel is appearing to him, and Zechariah is terrified. Look what Gabriel says. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Rejoice. And this son that Zechariah is going to have is the son that we know now is is John the Baptist, who would announce the coming of the Messiah, and, um, and and I don't think this means that that, that Zechariah was at that point praying for a child. He says, oh, "Your prayers have been answered." I don't think he's praying for that. What the reason is is he was on duty. Okay, he's on duty. His job is to pray for the nation, not himself. He's praying for the nation. And he was old. It's clear from the narrative. He did not expect like, oh, Lord, you can still come through and give me that baby. You know, No, he's not doing that. He's, he's super old. He's given up on that. What God is responding to is two things. He's responding to the prayers that Zechariah made decades ago. That's instructive to us, isn't it? He's making good on promises that were made decades ago, and he's making good on the, on the, on the prayers, sorry, the prayers that were made decades ago, and the prayers that he was making today for Israel. God's killing two birds with one stone. He's answering prayers that were from decades ago, and he's answering his prayers for today for Israel to send this messenger. And look at what uh, Gabriel says to Zechariah about his son John and what he'd be like. In verse 15, he says he'll be great before the Lord. In verse 15, he says he'll be odd. He says he's not going to drink any alcohol. He's not going to drink any wine. That would have been very odd back then, but that's only the beginning of oddness for this man because in Mark we learn that he was clothed in camel hair, wore a leather belt, and he ate locusts and honey. So this is a guy wandering around eating bugs and honey, okay? a very unusual guy, and it says at the end of our passage that he would, was living out in the wilderness. Another unusual thing about him in verse 15 says that he'd be filled from the Holy, with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Now, those of you guys who have kids know that doesn't come standard, okay? That's definitely an aftermarket feature, right? But this guy was actually filled with the Holy Spirit from before he was born, and it highlights God's choice of him, setting him apart from birth for this particular task. There was never a time when John was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating, right? It says in verse 16 that he would turn many back to the Lord. What a wonderful calling, right? And then it says in, that he would go out in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare his people for the Lord. You guys remember that 400-year uh, period of silence? Well, right before that 400-year period of silence, the last thing that God said to his people is in Malachi. He said this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of that the, of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And so he's saying that your son will be this end times messenger, the one that's going to come to pave the way for the Lord. How does Zechariah take it? Take a look in verse 18. He doesn't go from fear to joy. He goes from fear to what? To doubt. Check it out. Verse 16. He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Um, Side note, I love the fact that the Lord really enjoys messing with old people. (laughs) Have you ever noticed this? You can see this with Abraham and Sarah. Like, he specifically enjoys messing with old people. And I just love that, you know? Here, he's kind of thinking, I'm going to wind down my career. I'm kind of done. I'm going to kind of go back to the farm or whatever. And the Lord just seems to love shaking up older people and using them for something great. Maybe you're older here and you've assumed that the Lord just has nothing left for you to do. You're just going to kind of wait it out, right? That's not the case. You assumed wrong. If you're alive still, the Lord has a mission for you. You are not off the hook. There is no retirement from the Great Commission. And what I love about our church, we have lots of people that are older that are very involved. Maybe they're involved in discipling their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren or their great-great-grandchildren, or, you know, or there's some sort of ministry that they're doing day in and day out to people that are around them. Um, I, I would just say if you're in a place where you're feeling like you're just kind of too old to be of use to the Lord, I would say ask him for a bigger vision for your latter years. He has a mission for you guys. He has people for you to reach. He there's no reason that your best ministry couldn't be ahead of you. And I'm just praying as I'm looking at this passage that he would shake you up if you're not already shaken up and stir you up and mess up your plans for ease and use you in ways you had never even imagined. Because God does this regularly. This is his MO. He's like, look at that old couple. Let's shake him up, you know, and he finds some way. So um, if you're trying to live it out knees, just beware. He disturbs older saints. But Zechariah thought that the Lord was done with him because he was too old. Look at verse 18 again. He says, how will I know this? I'm old. My wife's old. And I love Gabriel's answer. He says, how will I know this? And he goes, I'm Gabriel. It's kind of like, do you get angelic messengers every day? Like, you know, it's like, how will I know this will happen? It's like, this is how you know. This is pretty straightforward, and he says, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak this good news to you, and then he disciplines him for this. He says, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days of these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were uh, fulfilled which will be fulfilled in your time. Zechariah needed some time to think, right? God turns his larynx off because he needs some time. He needs this trial to think and learn the word of the Lord. Some of you guys are in that situation right now. You have some sort of trial, and, and God's not doing this out of anger. Certainly wasn't out of anger. This was to give him some time to think and to, and to process and to believe, and it's, it's an awesome opportunity for Zechariah. It's probably nine, ten months, however long it took. Um, which freaks out everybody outside the temple, because normally they'd offer the incense, and then the priest would come outside, and he would bless the people. And he would do that, that one in Numbers, you know. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. He'd give that. So he comes out, and he can't speak. And the people are blown away. Look at verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering his delay. And when he came out and was unable to speak to them, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And so this stir occurs. Like what's going on? What's what's happening? And it and it get, intensifies back at home because old Elizabeth gets pregnant and she kind of hides away for a while because it's so weird. She doesn't know what to do, right? And then later she gives birth to John and and, and, and then you have this funny scene where the neighbors are like, you know, it can't be named John, you know, like that doesn't make sense. You know, all the neighbors have a say in it or whatever. And it's so great. And I love in there because they're 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 horrible at dealing with people with disabilities. It says that they, um, they're making signs to him. And it's like, well, Zechariah's not deaf. He's mute. You guys ever been like that with somebody that has a disability? You're just like, totally get it wrong. But they're all making signs to him. You can just talk to him. He's not deaf. He's mute. And then when he says on a, he writes down, it'll be John immediately speaks again. So the whole town's like, what is going on here, right? Verse 66, what will this child be? But what I think is really amazing and what I really want to focus in on this morning is Zechariah. Because John the Baptist, that comes later, he's got this great mission, but I really want to zero in just for a little bit on what happened in Zechariah's heart, because something amazing happened here. He went from fear and doubt and silence to joy and praise. Isn't that amazing? He even became an announcer of the Messiah. Even before his son was, he's announcing the Messiah. We can see that in verses um, 68 through 79. This is Zechariah's hymn. It's a song. It's prophecy, but it's a prophetic hymn, a phrase. And it's right after he gets his voice back, he immediately has this song to sing. So the nine months have been good for him, right? This comes out of him. Historically, this song's called the Benedictus, and it's Benedictus because it begins with blessed be. It's a benediction, benediction to God. In Zechariah's song, we can see that he went from fear and doubt and silence to joy and praise and even announcing the Messiah. And I just, just thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, we need that, don't we? And whatever he's got, we need. If he went from fear and doubt to joy and praise and announcing the Messiah's birth, we need that. We all need that desperately. I'm just thinking, what does he have? <laughs> I want some of what he has. And so what I want to do is just briefly look at his song a little bit. We won't have time to cover it all. I'm just going to focus on, if you look at verses um, 68 and 69, I want to focus just on the three verbs that are in there. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited, redeemed his people And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So I want to look at redeemed, um, visited, and and raised. These three verbs that stirred that old heart to to joy and praise. The first one, visited. The Lord has visited his people. Um, Quite literally. In the incarnation, we have the Lord, Yahweh, God himself, becoming a man. And we're going to dig into that more next week when we look at Mary's response. There's a lot of details there. But it's amazing. If you look at verse 76, it says, um, Zechariah is saying to his, uh, about his son, he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And I don't know if Zechariah even knows how literal that is. <laughs> you know, that he is going to prepare the way for Yahweh himself to come as a man. Um, John was merely the forerunner, the announcer, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. John, it says, is the prophet of the Most High, but we can see in verse 32 that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Um, We see that John points the way, but we know that Jesus is the way. In Jesus, we see God himself walking around with his people on earth, as a real human being. And he's not, we'll talk about this more, it's not God in a man suit. I think a lot of times we think that, is, you know, it's God on the, it's man on the outside, God on the inside. But he is 100% fully, is the better way to say it, fully God and fully man. That he has a real human mind, a real human soul, real human emotions, real human thoughts. He's really human on the inside, also God on the inside. We can talk about that next week. It's, it gets intense, but it's good. Um, but a real human being, but really God as well, and that changes everything. There's no way that the world can stay the same after the Creator became a human being and dwelt among us. He's visited His people. Secondly, He's redeemed them. The Lord has redeemed His people. Redeemed them from what? You think about Israel, you think about all their problems, right? They have all kinds of problems. They got the Romans are a problem. They got their religious divisions are a problem. They've got all kinds of problems. What did God come to ultimately redeem them from? You look in verse 77. It says that he to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins. They had all kinds of problems, guys, but their real issue, their re- greatest problem was their sin. Your greatest problem is your sin. Okay, a lot of times we think, like, my greatest problem is, like, my spouse's sin, my kid's sin, whatever, my boss's sin, whatever it is, right? Your greatest problem is your sin. And I'll tell you, the sooner you realize that and own that, the happier you'll be. You think, that doesn't make sense. No, it does make sense. There's a solution to your sin. There's a solution to your sin. Your greatest problem is your sin. He came to deliver these people with all kinds of problems from their sin. There's a solution to that because thirdly, he's raised a horn of salvation. You think a horn, what's that about? Well, the horn uh, imagery comes from this, you know, a bull or whatever has horns and that's kind of their way of fighting. Well, it became metaphorical for somebody that ruled or somebody that reigned or somebody that uh, won in battle. It was a horn. A horn of salvation, a horn of victory, that there was a, a lot of times a person, it was a, a ruler that would come and be powerful like a horn on a cow um, that, that, that could fight for the people. But what did this horn of salvation do, this Messiah do? He, this horn of salvation was, it says, raised up. He was raised up on a cross. Ultimately know that the way that he saved us was by being raised up on a wooden cross on a lonely hill outside Jerusalem as our substitute. This horn of salvation came and offered himself, his life for our life, his body for your body, his blood for your blood, his pain for your pain. It's as if when he was on the cross, it's as if your sin became his if you trust in him. You just think, that is an amazing thing, that some other real human, also God, gave himself, his very body, his very blood, his very pain, to take away your sin is a horn of salvation lifted up lifted up on a cross he was also three days there lifted up from the grave right and this salvation that jesus gives us is an all-inclusive salvation and we see that throughout um, Zechariah's song but he saves us three ways he saves us from the penalty of our sin that's the one we focus on a lot that's what i was just talking about he saves us from the power of our sin and one day he saves us from the presence of sin that sound good so penalty power and presence. First penalty, you saw that. You saw that on the cross he bore our sins. Takes away the penalty. If you trust in Jesus this morning, it will be as if you had never sinned, and then even more than that, it'll be as if you lived his perfect righteous life. There's something called the great exchange, where his righteousness is given to you. Your sin was given to him. He goes to the cross and pays for that. Um, he, He takes away the power of sin. Look at verse 74. Zechariah says that he has come to do this, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. One of the things that's included in this horn of salvation being raised up for us is that he breaks the power of sin in your life. Not just forgiveness of sin, but freedom from sin. Not just the penalty of sin removed, but the power of sin. You say all at once. It's a process. God shows us how to walk in that. He he works with us to to take away those yokes. Because these guys were under oppression, right? They are under Roman oppression. But the worst oppression was their sin. The worst oppression you could ever be under is your sin. Sin is the real oppression. It's the real slavery. It's the real power that keeps us down. Jesus came to save us from the penalty and the power that we might serve. Doesn't this sound good? That we might, and this is talking about our lives right now, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. That's what the cross gets. It's the power of sin. Thirdly, the presence of sin. Because for these people and for us, there's just a lot of problems still around. I could believe in Jesus, have my sins forgiven, him Tearing away the power of sin in my life um, as I learned to walk in, in obedience, as I'm learning as a disciple. But there's still problems, right? There's still problems for these people. There's Roman oppression, religious division. Um, there's all kinds of problems in, the, in this world. Jesus will save us from all those earthly problems with a very earthly new earth. Okay? Because a lot of times we think, like, okay, we have earthly problems. Someday we die. We go to a non-earthly place. That part's true, but there's more because when he returns, he comes and he makes all things new. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see that the final destination is a very earthy earth, okay? Solid, maybe more solid than this, an amazing new place where sin doesn't dwell. How are you going to feel? How are you going to feel waking up that first morning, right, in the new world and not feeling any impulse towards sin? All those things you always wanted to like be able, you know, you read like the, um, the, the Bible and it talks about the fruits of the Spirit and you want to love people, you want to serve people, you want to do those things, you have intentions in that way and, and, and God is freeing you from the power of sin, but you're still getting beat down and, you know, knocked down. How is it going to feel for you to finally have no weight of sin trying to drag you down? It's going to feel awesome. We're going to look back on the way we tried to follow the Lord here and it's going to be as if we were like 700 pound people that we were like this, you know, all the time. Like, okay, I'm going Lord, here I go, you know. And then in the new world to have our resurrected bodies be made new and not have the presence of sin in our lives is going to be a great freedom. How can we be sure? Careful, right? That's what Zachariah asked, right? How can we be sure? (laughs) How can we be sure? How can we be sure these things will happen? The way that we can be sure is that God is a promise-keeping God. What turned Zachariah's fear and doubt into joy and praise? It was that Zachariah saw the Lord fulfill one of his promises, so he trusted him to do the rest. Isn't that amazing? That's what happened. That's the way faith works, guys. Faith is not actually that mysterious. The way it works is this. You have faith in people that are faithful. You trust people that are trustworthy. You see people that do things that they say they're going to do over and over again, and you put your faith in them. You put your trust in them. It works the same way with the Lord. Zachariah saw that God made good on one of his promises, which actually a couple of them, which would be silent. He would have a child. He would have his voice restored to him. He saw that God fulfilled those promises, and he trusted Him for the rest. But here's the thing, guys. We have seen way more answered promises than he had right? Way more. And we should trust him more, right? And I don't think we give him credit for keeping his promises like we should, right? Zachariah saw the birth of his son. But we live in a time after a bunch of other promises have been fulfilled. The Lord has visited his people, right? In the incarnation, just as he said he would. Um, The Lord has redeemed and saved his people by the cross, just as he said he would. The Lord has risen, just as he said he would. The Lord has ascended, Jesus has ascended to the throne, just as he said he would. The Lord has sent the Spirit at Pentecost, just as he said he would. He has kept all of his promises along the timeline, and we can trust him to keep the rest, right? There's no reason not to trust him, right? We should trust him. Advent's about remembering all that the Lord has accomplished in his first coming so that we'll have confidence that he's going to keep the ones of his second coming, right? What else has he promised to do? He has promised, if you're trusting in Christ, repent of your sin, trust in Christ, he has promised to you to keep you until the end, the, to return for you, to resurrect you. That's a big one, to resurrect you, new body. He has promised to reign on earth and be your everlasting joy. And we shouldn't doubt that he's going to do any of that. We have no reason to doubt any of that because his track record is perfect. Okay, so if we doubt that, like the problem's with us. They got a track record. We're like, I don't know. You know, it's like he has done it. We shouldn't doubt any of it. And you know what, guys? He's already accomplished the hardest promise. Hardest one's the cross, right? Cross resurrection. Those are the hardest ones. Coming back, not a big deal. Keeping you, not a big deal. Uh, r- making the world new, not a big deal compared to what he's already done. I love the image in 78. Take a look at it. He says, "...because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, and to give our feet into the way of peace." I love this image. It's the image of a sunrise, really common. It's in Isaiah as well, about the Messiah being like a sunrise, right? Right? And, um, and you know in the morning, some of you guys were up real early this morning, and you know that light you have before you can see the sun, but you see the light coming over the horizon, right? And no one, when they see that, doubts that the morning is coming. No one's like, I don't know if it's going to be day. Like, you no, know, you know. You know it's going to be day, right? It's, it's inevitable. Guys, he's fulfilled his promises to the degree that we shouldn't doubt the rest is coming, Right? He's fulfilled the promises. He has already given us more than the first light of dawn. And we should have no doubt that he'll bring the rest that is coming. There's no rational reason to doubt he will bring the rest. Zechariah went from fear and doubt and silence to joy and praise. He even became an announcer of the Messiah. And guys, so can we. Right? This is where the power of it comes from. Advent is a season of announcement. Advent is is about announcing the news that God has kept his promises in Jesus. Right? And we're called to announce. And I know this is the part where everybody's like, oh. it was like, amen, amen. And it's like, uh oh. Right? Guys, remember from a couple of weeks ago, we are called just to announce. We are called to be his witnesses. Very rich tradition of calling ourselves witnesses, right? It goes back to the New Testament. We're called to be Jesus' witnesses, not his attorney. Remember that? We're called to be his witnesses, not his attorney. An attorney's job is to give a complete airtight defense that wins the case. That's not your job. That's actually the Holy Spirit's job. He's the counselor, right? Our job as witnesses is to tell what we know. Isn't that nice? Because you can't change the human heart. But you're there to tell what you know. Tell what you know from scripture. Tell what you know of God uh, changing your life. Tell of what you know in God changing the lives of people in your own church. Right? We're called to be as witnesses. We're called to announce. And I want to give you guys just a very simple action plan. You don't have to do it. I can't make you do it. I think it would be great, though, if you would do it. Which is this. The way you would start is bake cookies. Okay? Like every great missional plan starts with bake cookies. Now, actually... Um, so, baked cookies. Uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about how um, we should, we need to know our neighbors. We need to know them. They need to know we're Christians. We need to serve them in unusual ways, ways that are questionable in a good way, so that they go like, what drives these people? They're weird. Like, they're weird in a good way. Like, they really love us, and they keep serving us. What's going on, right? So, we need to know them. They know we're Christians. And then we need to live questionable lives, lives that would cause some question, and then we can give them the gospel. Um, I, I was talking about that. It was two weeks ago. And it's so funny. Val texted me. I think she texted me like the day after. And it was a picture of their fence it had all been blown down. Okay? Because the winds were crazy that morning. And her fence, was. it was God. It, was, it wasn't any fence. It was all, it's like one backyard. And she goes, I think that the Lord is trying to help us to actually apply Sunday's message. And I was like, that's awesome. And then I felt a little bad. I'm like, hey, you know, it was great. And so he, they said it's great. They're getting another neighbor. to neighbors. They're sharing a backyard with them, right? They come up with a plan for a fence. That could be you. No, I'm just kidding. OK, so bake cookies, OK? Or if you don't bake cookies, you could do something else. Our neighbor, Roland, he brings us regularly smoked meats. OK, so if you can smoke meats, smoke them if you got them, right, the meats. Bake cookies. OK, so this is what you would do. You bake cookies you'd take said cookies to your neighbor, you'd bring them an invite card, and this has some, you know, about our series and things like that, it would say, hey, I'm a Christian, go a step further. We've got these Gospel of Luke books, they're really nice ones too, they got a nice little tree on them, stuff like that, a little label with their web address, Um, and what you can do is you include a little card, a little handwritten note that just says, hey, the first two chapters are the Christmas story. You guys realize that, right? Luke's the best one, to do the Christmas story from because the first two chapters are all the Christmas story. Guys, what we want is we want your neighbors to know you're a Christian, to be served by you, and we would love the, for them to read scripture, right? So if they would read this, the first two chapters, it would be something that could generate some questions, um, perhaps that will keep reading. So I would cookies or smoked meats, uh, the card, this written note, and then pray for them daily. And let's see what happens. I love on the back of this, it says, The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. That verse was already on there. Guys, trust in that. Trust in the fact that the gospel is powerful. There are a lot of people that live right near you that have not read scripture in years, or maybe never read it. Maybe they didn't know it could be read run into a lot of people like that. They're like, oh, you can just read it. I'm like, yeah, it's written in normal language. I don't know what they expected, you know. But praying, guys, might start a conversation. Don't be afraid for it to start a conversation, right? If there's something you don't know, probably you're not going to get grilled, okay? If you did, we have all kinds of brainiacs in this church that could give you answers for those things if there's answers. We'll work on that together. You can always say, I don't know. Let me check on that. They're not going to be like, well, if you don't know, then... This must not be the truth if you don't know all of it. Like nobody acts like that, right? So it'll uh, start a conversation. If it doesn't start a conversation, what have you done? You, you've blessed people. You've given them the word of God in their home. Maybe it'll be read later. There's all kinds of stories. Maybe some of you guys are like this. You just picked up scripture, started reading it, and God saved you. Amazing, right? He does that. Many of your testimonies are like that. And so it's a great way to give in are very attractive You can do that. Guys, this is what we're made to do. Guys, we exist to display and declare the gospel for the glory of God and the joy of all people. I don't know if you've got a better mission statement for your life, but let me give you one if you don't. We exist to display and declare the gospel for the glory of God and joy of all people. And you will be happiest when you're doing it. You guys know that. When's the last time you were able to really talk about Christ to somebody that doesn't know Christ? How'd you feel? Awesome, right? That's because we were made to do it. We were made to do it. And you know what you'll find is that some of your neighbors are... Um, our believers, they don't have a church. That's super common in our area. Tons of people are professing Christians, but they don't have a church. don't know anywhere they're going. This could be a starting point for them. Don't be like, oh, well, he talked about Jesus, so give it to him. Maybe that person hasn't read scripture in years, right? We're all good at talking the game, right? We're all good at like, oh, yeah, Revelation, Romans, yep, 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 and maybe not read the Bible in years. Start a conversation And guys, is this scary? For some people, it is. But it's always seeing Christ, like Zechariah did, that turns our fears and doubts to joy and praise. 1 Peter 3.14 says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then listen to this. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. What is this saying? Treasuring Christ in your heart. Worship in your heart. And then he says, then you'll always be ready. How are we made ready? We're made ready by worship. If we're worshiping Christ in our hearts, we're always ready to talk about him. Because, guys, evangelism is simply praising Jesus in front of other people. You guys realize that? You're like, I love worship. I love praise. Just do it in front of other people. That's what we call evangelism, right? We talk about what we're most excited about. So that's how all this goes together. If so you got Advent, Advent's something you can do in your home to stoke your joy and praise for Christ. And then we've got a way for you to announce or to start the ball rolling and announcing. And that's just you venting the joy you have in Christ. Isn't that awesome? This is the mission he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. And, like, that's a lot of verses, and there's so much more in there. I just thank you for the song of Zechariah. And just, Lord, I just pray that we would spend this week maybe pulling that song out and digging into all of its little nooks and crannies and enjoying all that's there. And, Father, we pray that you would shake us up. Lord, that we wouldn't settle into some sort of comfortable retirement phase no matter what our age. Lord, some of us are much younger and are retiring from the Great Commission. We pray, Lord, that you shake us up. You do what's needed. Knocking down fences, for example. Lord, and we pray that you would give us great joy in it. Just not just a duty, but it'd be our delight to speak of Jesus to people that don't know him. To speak of him to people that do know him, but are not fully, maybe aware, or not fully invested in your mission. We thank you, Lord, for um, our missionaries that have gone out and left home and comfort. Thank you for Holly, who's here with us today, who's been laboring in Cambodia. We pray that you bless her work there. We pray for Lorian right now, as maybe she's chilling on her Persian rug. <laughs> Lord, we pray that you'd be encouraging her, give her a good time in the Word. We pray for the, the two translators that she's been sharing Christ with that said they were going to come to Thanksgiving. I pray that you would move them. And Lord, we pray that you would activate us. Lord, we do not want to be still when there's such good news to share. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is for those who have turned their back on sin and are entrusting in Jesus for their salvation. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that the Lord fulfills his promises, right? It's another reminder of that. The Lord's Supper reminds us that he's fulfilled his promises in the past, and he will fulfill his future ones. It reminds us that God is the kind of God that does what he says he'll do, right? We tend to break our promises. We tend to back down when the costs get too high. But the Lord walked through fire for you, if you're a Christian this morning. Worse than that, he endured the holy wrath on the cross for all your sin, Guys, if the cross didn't make him give up on you, nothing will. He's already walked through fire for you. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood. His body for our body. His blood for our blood. The Lord's Supper, guys, is not our pledge of faithfulness to him. It's a sign of his faithfulness to us. It's a reminder that he's been to hell and back for you, and he will certainly come back for his bride. And so, Christians, take the bread, take the cup, take courage. The Lord is faithful. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.